And last night it was so inspiring to hear Thomas talk about his own journey and call to the Catholic Protestant And obviously, didn't there 2017 must have something to do with Catholic Protestant. Right. Yeah, and I know why one is here. <laughs> the anointing of God upon the people of Israel is to bless the Gentiles. And I just want to say to you, Jewish brothers and sisters, we Gentiles are so blessed by your presence in us. Und ich möchte, liebe jüdische Geschwister, sagen, dass wir so gesegnet sind, dass ihr unter uns seid. You bring so much to us. Ihr, bringt, ihr, ihr gebt, gebt uns so viel. Your presence connects us with our spiritual roots. Uh, eure, Gegen, uh, eure Anwesenheit verbindet uns mit unseren geistlichen Wurzeln. And by spiritual roots, I don't just mean Jesus, obviously he is the pinnacle. Und mit geistlichen Wurzeln meine ich nicht nur Jesus, natürlich der ist der Gipfel. Where would we Gentiles be without Abraham? Aber wo wären wir als Nichtjuden ohne Abraham? Where would we Gentiles be without the record in the Jewish scripture of Moses, one of the greatest men of God that's ever lived? Who has influenced Christian worship more than David? <laughs> so thank you, Jewish brothers and sisters. You connect us with our spiritual roots. Also danke, liebe jüdische Geschwister, ihr verbindet uns mit unseren geistlichen Wurzeln. Without you, we can't. Without you, we Gentiles would be wandering in great darkness. Ohne ihr, wir als Nichtjuden würden in große Dunkelheit kommen. It's another thing that your presence does for us, blesses us in other ways. Your presence invites us to an attitude of humility. You are the older brother. We are the younger wild brothers and sisters. And when, if, if all we were were Catholic and Protestant, so easily we get into these theological discussions that have been rooted in centuries. So einfach fallen wir in theologische Gespräche, die seit oder Argumente, die seit Jahrhunderten. But all of a sudden, here are Jewish brothers and sisters. Aber auf einmal haben wir unsere uh, jüdische Geschwister. Their fathers were following Jesus before we even heard anything about Jesus. And so your presence invites us to an attitude of humility. Also eure Anwesenheit legt uns zu einer Haltung der Demut ein. We're not the ones who have it all and know it all. We need to learn from you. And reconciliation between Catholic and Protestant and Free Church requires humility. There is such a thing as Catholic arrogance. Es gibt äh, so eine Sache, die äh, der Kat 
katholische Stolz heißt. We must have Catholic humility. Und wir brauchen katholische Demut. There is for sure something that is Anglican we must have Anglican humility. Protestant humility. Free church humility. There's a third thing that you Jewish brothers and sisters do for us. Your presence invites us to grieve. Eure Anwesenheit lädt uns zu Trauer ein. Weil Antisemitismus ist eine Eigenschaft äh, der nichtjüdischen äh, Leib Christi äh, über die ganzen Jahrzehnte. It's not just the Germans, it's not just the Catholics, it's not just the Lutherans, it's all of us. Es geht hier nicht nur um die Deutschen, um die Katholiken, um die äh, evangelischen Geschwister, es geht um uns alle. And we Americans, we can't say, oh, this is a European problem. Und äh, auch wir Amerikaner können nicht sagen, ach, das betrifft nur den Europäer. Because our forefathers were Europeans. Weil unsere äh, Vorfahren, die waren Europäer. And um, for there to be reconciliation between Catholic and Protestant and Free Church, there must be grieving, grieving. Damit ähm, Versöhnung zwischen Katholiken, äh, Evangelischen und Freikirchlichen äh, Geschwistern, damit das stattfinden kann, muss man erstmal trauen. This, this is not an exercise in the head or in theology. Also das, was wir hier besprechen, das ist äh, keine äh, Kopfübung oder irgendwie theologische Übung. Reconciliation is not about all agreeing on the same thing. It's not about that. Äh, für, bei, mit Versöhnung geht es nicht darum, dass wir alle äh, eine Meinung über eine bestimmte Sache haben. Re Reconciliation is the restoring of a relationship. Uh, Versöhnung bedeutet die Wiederherstellung einer Beziehung. We have broken our relationships with one another. Wir haben unsere Beziehungen und, 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 und untereinander gebrochen. Die sind gebrochen. This grieves the heart of God. Und, und, und das schmerzt den, das Herz Gottes. And we are invited into that grief. Und er legt uns in diesen Schmerz hinein. Not to fix it. Nicht damit wir das äh, irgendwie ähm, präparieren können, nehmen können, sondern damit wir gemeinsam trauen. Und ein letzter Beitrag, den ihr äh, uns bringt, As we have the opportunity to honor you, äh, wenn, wir die, äh, wenn wir die Gelegenheit haben, euch zu ehren, spiritual strongholds Rooted in history, begin to be broken. Dann fangen geistliche Festungen, die in der Geschichte verwurzelt sind, sie beginnen zu fallen. Das Böse, was gegen das Volk Israel getan worden ist, ist eine geistliche Festung. Now, there's just one more thing I've seen, and I'm going to introduce Richard. We're not talking about romanticizing the people of Israel. We must guard against that. On the one hand, contempt. On the other hand, romanticism. We don't want either one. Da, da, da müssen wir drauf achten, aber es gibt dann diese Gegenpolen, also da auf der einen Seite den, der Hohn, aber auf der anderen Seite dann diese Romanisierung, das andere Extrem. I find myself often saying, if you want to romanticize Israel, read the Israeli prophets. Ja, also ich, ich sage oft, wenn, wenn man da in Gefahr ist, dass man Israel romantisiert, dann soll man erstmal die Propheten lesen. And Hannah always has an Ergänzung. <laughs> or read the Jerusalem Post. <laughs> so we're not talking about that. But we are talking 
you Jewish brothers and sisters give us an opportunity to honor our spiritual elders. Aber ihr jüdische Geschwister äh, gibt uns eine Gelegenheit, unsere ähm, äh, ah, unsere älteren Brüder zu ehren. Dr. Richard Harvey is Jewish. Dr. Richard Harvey ist ein Jude. He was born in England in the area of uh, London. Er ist in England äh, in der Nähe von London geboren. He is a scholar. Er ist äh, Wissenschaftler. He is a researcher. Er ist Forscher. He is a lover of Jesus. Er ist ein Liebhaber Jesus. He is a disciple of younger people. Uh, er um, bringt uh, junge Leute in Jungenschaft. And he is um, um, a student of the Messianic movement. Er, ist, uh, er studiert die messianische Bewegung. He divides his time between England and his often is in Israel. Uh, er teilt seine Zeit zwischen uh, England und seinem Ofenich. Uh, in, 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 no, in Israel. In, in Israel. And Richard, we are so honored to have you here. Oh, cool. Oh, lovely. We have a clicker as well. Thank you so much. Now, my son is a student at Oxford University, and he would say, Dad, you don't talk proper. <laughs> so uh, I hope that you can hear me through the translation. We're translating from English English to American English to my American brothers and sisters. But that's a bad joke. Uh, but it will tell you where I'm heading. Let, let's see if we can get the. Uh, so how do I click the next one? I've lost the arrow forwards. Come and give me back the arrow. Yeah. Uh, this will just take a few moments of setup. Okay. Excellent. Can you all see the screen okay? Okay. Wonderful. If you can't see the screen okay, do make sure you can see the screen. That's more important than looking at me. And I want to thank you for your introduction and say what a privilege and a joy and an honour it is for me to be here. Now, where you have two Jews, you have three opinions, but I think that I'm sure Benjamin and Mariana and Hannah would also say how, what a warm and loving welcome. It, it just brings cold water to a hungry soul. So thank you so much for inviting me to be with you, and it's a privilege for me to share with you. And the aim of my presentation is to give us a sense of the history of the split, the first split between Israel and the nations in the body of Messiah, and to see how that might challenge us to model reconciliation today, especially amongst the denominations. And my prayer is that I'm just giving some thoughts and reflections and a little history that will speak to each one of us differently. But the Lord, my prayer is the Lord will use that to build our unity and our vision and our sense of purpose, especially for 2017. If you want to download this PowerPoint, you can download it at www.mappingmessianicjewishtheology.eu, mmjt.eu, or you can email me or let me know. Let's, are you with me? And uh, I'm going to stop in about 20, 22 minutes for questions and discussion, because I don't want to take all my time is going to be 40 minutes, but I really think it's important for us to be interacting, commenting, and if you have questions. 
So I will go quite quickly through these four steps. My own personal reflection and why I'm here. The historic factors which led to the rejection of evil, uh, of the rejection of Israel and the rejection of the Jewish believers in Yeshua in the church. The present situation and the need for reconciliation and how lament and grief should be part of that. And the future prospect are rejoicing together. So if you're not sure where I am, that's roughly the outline. And you see we have church and Israel and uh, the Messianic Jews are fully Christian and fully Jewish. And we are somehow part of both. And so I like this title, The Elder Brother, and it's always nice to be welcomed as an elder brother. But some of you are quite old. <laughs> so I'm not older than most of you. And of course it was uh, Pope John Paul at the, at the Wailing Wall who t gave this wonderful prayer about the Jewish people being the elder brother. And I was very pleased that we had the reflection last night on that wonderful painting by Rembrandt because for me the question is always about the role of the elder brother. I'm just wondering if our lights might um, be... Uh, oh, yes. And I see we have the painting, uh, a reproduction of that painting, a wonderful picture to sit and meditate with. And of course you have the loving arms of the Father embracing the Son and welcoming him back. No condemnation, no judgment, no rejection, simply the warmth of his love welcoming back the Son. And then you have the Father's wisdom and compassion and mercy as the Son is welcomed back. But the question for me is always about the elder brother. And I believe that the elder brother has rejoined the party. He was outside and when he hears the party going on and his father comes out to him and says, this is your younger brother who has returned. He was lost and now is restored. I believe this is the younger brother prophetically envisioned by Rembrandt, the older brother prophetically envisioned by Rembrandt coming to rejoice also. But we must be careful with the younger brother, older brother comparison. It can be misused. My family, my great-great-grandfather, great-great-great-grandfather, Salomon Hirsch, Hirschland, born in Steinheim, Westphalia in 1766, and he, the story goes, walked with his family and his goods and his cattle to Essen, and uh, that's where the family was. And uh, my great-great-grandfather was Moses Hirschland, who was a doctor of medicine. He was the private doctor to Alfred Krupp. Is it Krupp? Yeah. yeah. The industrialist. They wrote to each other in English. Dear doctor, come and have tea with me. And uh, they were good personal friends. And Simon Hirschland was the founder of the Hirschland Private Bank which was the largest private bank in Germany and the last one to be nationalised by the National Socialists because it was bringing money into the economy to build the military effort. Are you following me on the translation okay? No. Shall I pause? Shall I say that again? Let's say it again. Moses Hirschman was the uh, doctor for Alfred Krutz, they were family friends, and Simon Hirschland founded the Hirschland Private Bank, the largest private bank in Germany, the last one to be nationalised by the National Socialists, because it was bringing money into the German war effort, the military build-up. Uh, I do hope I'm not going too fast. So if you're English, English or English-American, I'm going okay, nod your heads. And if you're German and I'm going okay, nod your heads. And if you're not, by the way, I'm Jewish, I talk with my hands. I need eye contact and body language. 
I'm not typically British or typically uh, anything. Uh, <laughs> but uh, this was the family. And of course, when the German uh, National Socialists took over, everything was lost. My great-grandfather was already in England, but many of my family were deported and lost their lives. So this was my great-grandfather, Richard Hirschland, the Hirschland family there in Essen, in Altdorf. That was the family home, also lost, and that was the family bank, now a department store. Now all we have is a public square and an underground station. I'd rather the bank than the home. <laughs> but we have a square and an underground station. Can you hear the pathos? The sense of pain that is also linked to humour. And in Jewish life, we suffer and we rejoice at the same time. We have joy with an oi. <laughs> and this is how we survive. And so the family came to London and uh, the synagogue was there. Uh, the family uh, founders, they're listed, and the brothers, Hirschland, London, that was my great-grandfather, made a contribution. In 1939, the synagogue was burnt, but was preserved. It wasn't uh, destroyed, and it's still there in essence today. So my historical, my reflection on where I'm coming from is that the history of my family is that but for 20 miles of water, I wouldn't be here today. But because my great-grandfather Richard Hirschen came over, Sidney Moses, my grandfather, named after Moses Hirschen, the doctor, and then my father, Anthony Adolf Hirschen. Oi, what a name, Anthony Adolf. But this was a popular boy's name until a certain Adolf came along. So right in our family, there's this sense of what happened. And I'm Richard Simon, I'm named after the banker, but I don't have the bank. So that's where I'm coming from. And there's always a bitter sweetness for me when I come to Germany. Do you understand the phrase? It's bitter and it's sweet. I feel this is my home, but I don't even understand the language. I can hardly understand what would have been my mamalosh and my mother tongue if it wasn't for the sad history. So let's look at the historical rejection. And uh, I want to go briefly through what the scholars call the parting of the ways. Although some scholars talk about the ways that never parted. Their traditional view, which is typified by a man like James Parks, the conflict of the church and the synagogue, is that the parting of the ways between Judaism and Christianity occurred fairly soon in the early centuries of the Christian church. But more modern understandings, and I'm, I'm modern in my approach, the ways that never parted. And in fact, we perhaps should even rethink our understanding of the history of the church to say that this parting was not so quick or so absolute. And if we think of the two streams flowing out from uh, God's purposes, the stream of Israel and the Jewish people, and the stream of the church and the nations, we should really see this as one river, rather than two different rivers or two different ways. And this is something the scholars are discussing. It's an academic subject which is quite heated. The traditional view is that between the year 70... What happened in the year 70? Destruction of the temple. I'm a teacher, by the way. And what happened in the year 135? The Revolt. And it was an easy scholarly package to say that between the years 170, the destruction of the temple, the Bar Revolt, uh, a prayer was inserted into the synagogue service, the Zakat, which means the blessing of heretics, but the word min is an interesting word. It can mean a sectarian, a type, a heretic. It can even be a short form for ma'amin b'yeshua ha'notsri, a believer in Jesus of Nazareth. Again, the scholars aren't quite sure about this, but this uh, quick process led to Jerusalem becoming a Roman city anyway, Iolia Castellina. 
Jewish believers, according to the early church historian Eusebius, were warned by a vision to flee before the destruction, and they went across the Jordan to uh, a place called Pella. And in the Bar Kokhba revolt, there was actually a civil war going on amongst the Jewish people themselves, and the Jewish believers were excluded. That's the traditional view. Uh, I'm the revisionist view. Uh, Daniel Boyarin and Paula Fredrickson and others argue that the separation of Judaism and Christianity was unsystematic, sporadic, and not complete until the time of the 4th or 5th century. And so the partitioning of Jewish Christianity as the Jews who believed in Jesus was necessary around the 4th or 5th century of the Common Era in order to define the borders so that if you're Jewish you cannot believe in the divinity of the Messiah and if you're Christian you cannot practice Judaism. So Jewish believers in Jesus are often piggy in the middle, not very kosher. And Jerome says they are neither Jews nor Christians, even though they claim to be both. Now this division, this dividing and setting up of the boundary markers is, I think, a very sad fact of history. Based on the anti-Judaism that was arising in the church and the need for the rabbis to define what was acceptable in Judaism. Are you following me? Okay. Not for my lovely. Um, so what we have is the key periods in the early history where the Messiah is living among us as Jewish people uh, and then around 32, the Great Commission to go to all nations. Even the Germans can believe in our Messiah. Even the Dutch. Even the British. Even the Swiss. If I was God, I would have done it differently. But the generosity to go into all the nations, and of course the first missionaries were Jewish disciples, speaking about the greatest Jewish rabbi, prophet, teacher who ever lived. And then we have this tradition of 14 Jewish bishops of Jerusalem. Who is familiar with this material, by the way? And who is this new to? Yeah. Does anybody here not have a Jewish friend? Who has a Jewish friend here? Who doesn't have a Jewish friend? You all do. Jesus. He's the greatest. So, 124 Jewish bishops of Jerusalem. By the time of 150, Justin Martyr is having a debate with a rabbi called Trifo, it may be Rabbi Tarfon, who's mentioned in the Passover Haggadah service, and he says, well, there are some Jews who believe in the Messiah, but they're weak. They are, they're weak because they're still keeping the law. And they were either called Nazarenes, followers of the teacher from Nazareth, or Ebionites, Ebionim, poor. They were either poor financially, because Paul is collecting gifts for the poor in Jerusalem, or poor spiritually and theologically, because they may not truly believe in the divinity of Messiah, of Christ, and they may still think they should keep the law, circumcision, kosher food, Shabbat, the Sabbath. And so against this is the early church beginning to write Epiphanius in his Panarium, the box that has everything in it, writes against the Jewish Christians who are still practising the Torah. And Jerome translates the New Testament with the help of Messianic Jews. They weren't called that then. Uh, we think they were, but uh, they weren't. They were called Christianoi. Uh, and then in the 5th to the 9th century, there's evidence of Jewish Christian groups in the East influencing the Syriac church and conducting evangelism amongst the Muslims. So we even have records of Muslim apologists, Muslim evangelists, saying we don't want these, this sect of Jewish Christians here. That's in the 10th century. So the key consequences of this 
is the separation between synagogue the blind synagogue, where are these statues from? Does anyone know? And uh, the church with uh, pride and the cross. And there is a key consequence which would take us a long time to discuss. The loss of a Jewish worldview. In other words, the separation of the physical and the spiritual into the sacred and the secular. May God forgive us our Western Aristotelian dualisms because it is not a biblical, holistic view of humanity, of God and his creation. And yet we have said sex is bad and pleasure is bad and the body is a tomb and the spirit must be set free. This is not biblical teaching, but we inherit this. Anti-Judaism comes into Christian theology. I need to distinguish between anti-Semitism, hatred of Jews as Jews, and anti-Judaism, hatred of Jewish religion and practice, although, in fact, they are often the same things. But scholars use the term anti-Judaism. Supersessionism, I will define in a moment. And when Judaism and Christianity parted company, the truth was divided, said William Temple, Archbishop of Canterbury, English, by the way. Uh, and, of course, there was never really one Judaism and one Christianity. There was Jews who believed in Yeshua and Jews who did not believe in Yeshua. And there were the nations, the Gentiles, who believed in Yeshua, and there were the nations who did not. So even Judaism and Christianity are two false distinctions. But we inherit them without thinking. So the Jewish believers in Jesus are without a home among the people of Israel or in the Christian church. And so the Messianic Jewish community ends up in the no man's land in between. I remember when I became a believer in Jesus, my Jewish friends said, forget this Jesus business. Come back to the synagogue. Be a nice Jewish boy. And my synagogue is a wonderful synagogue in London. Come and I'll show you. And my Christian friends, I heard them saying, now that you have become a Christian, you are no longer a Jew. All things have passed away. The new has come. It's no sin to be Jewish. I didn't have to repent of it when I became a believer in Jesus. But this is what I heard. And this, like for many of us as Jewish believers, we, we come into this context of these Two groups in conflict. Tertullian, an early church father, speaks about the new law of peace and love which replaces the law of retribution, of judgment under the law. He says how Israel ceases to be God's chosen people. And if God has finished with Israel because of her sin, how much more does God finish with you and me and our denominations because of our sin? If God is unfaithful to Israel, we have no grounds for hope and will be faithful to us. And Tertullian uses this picture of Israel now being the older brother and Jacob being the younger brother. You can see how easy it is to twist these images. And biological metaphors are always rather problematic, especially if they're taken beyond Scripture. Chrysostom, the golden-tongued preacher, his homilies against the Jews. By the way, when I share this, it fills me with sorrow and sadness. And I'm sure for you, the sense of guilt for the past is also there. And my aim is not to guilt-trip us into despondency, but to motivate us into prayer and repentance and reconciliation and rejoicing. But we do need to know the history. And many of us aren't familiar with it. Shall I tell you of their plundering, their covetousness, their abandonment of the poor, their thefts, their cheating in trade? The whole day long will not be enough to give you an account of these things. But he still has ten sermons on. But do their festivals have something solemn and great about them? They have shown that these two are impure. Actually, Chrysostom wasn't all bad. Everybody should study his works, his meditations. Some of them are sublime. But this is an evil that crept in. 
And he has a problem because actually there are Christians who are going to synagogue because the rabbis are better preachers than the Christian preachers. And the rabbis know the scriptures better than the Christians do. And why do you tell people not to go to the synagogue? Not to go to the meals that they're celebrating? Because they aren't. And in fact, I'm amazed the attraction that there still is. So many Christians discover their love for the Jewish people and the depth of teaching that is there in the history of Israel. St. Augustine, and, and I'm, I would like to get to Calvin and Luther and Aquinas and Bart, but I'm going to leave that to Verena. You're going to cover this also? Should we stop at Augustine? I mean, oh, yeah. yeah. Are you still with me okay? Uh, good, thank you. The church admits and abounds the Jewish people to be cursed because after killing Christ, they continue to till the ground of its earthly circumcision. We are circumcised on the eighth day. An earthly Sabbath. Yes, the Sabbath is good for you. An earthly Passover. Yes, what better way to celebrate the death and resurrection of our Messiah Yeshua while the hidden strength or virtue of making Christ known, which this tilling contains, he's using a sort of allegorical interpretation borrowed from Platonism, they, while they continue in impiety and unbelief, for it is revealed in the New Testament, while they will not turn to God, the veil which is on their minds in reading the Old Testament is not taken away. The Jewish people, like Cain, continue tilling the ground. You see Cain and Abel, we've switched the older and the younger brother again. Not very good exegesis, Augustine. But he's doing it to prioritise the church against the Jewish people. Uh, continue in the carnal observance of the law. Now, oh, how I love thy law. On it I meditate day and night, says David. And yet Augustine says it's fleshly which does not yield to them its strength because they do not know, they do not present in it the uh, race of Christ. They do not reflect in it the race of Christ. Now, Augustine is a big theologian. And our Protestant and our Catholic denominations are all inheriting this teaching. Most of us don't even know about it. The early church then develops this invective, this violent, vitriolic, polemical, anti-Jewish tradition, adversus Judeus, against the Jews. St. Augustine, Ambrose, Chrysostom, Jerome, etc. Many, many others. Now, I slip forward. Oh, you've got that. Well, I've lost it again. It's not following me on the uh, remote. Let's go from there. So, I talk about types of supersessionism. <laughs> And this is from a scholar called R. Kendall Sulan, who talks about punitive supersession. Sedeo is to sit in the seat. Super sedeo is to take somebody else's seat. The court is in session. It is seated. Supersessionism is taking somebody else's seat, which we often say is replacement theology. This is a bit more of an academic term if you want to sound intelligent. Uh, Israel is to be punished for her rejection of the Jewish people so the wandering Jew is condemned to wander through Europe then there is economic supersessions in the plan of God, in the economy of God Israel is no longer needed in God's purposes so there is no continuing theological significance outside the church. Israel is like the first stage of a rocket to get the rocket out of the Earth's orbit, or out of the gravitational pull and into orbit. Has anybody seen the film Gravity here? Oh, wow, what a film. About George Clooney and somebody else shooting out of the Earth and they're in orbit. This is popular culture, by the way. But if we want to reach the young people in 2017, we need to speak in their language also. 
So economic supersessionism is where it's used to get the rocket out of the gravitational pull of the Earth, but once you've got out of the gravitational pull, you no longer need the first part of the rocket, it's thrown away. It's jettisoned. And so there is no continuing theological significance. Sadly, many Christian denominations have bought into this wholesale. I would say the majority of Anglican theology is built on this presupposition. Uh, and I'm occasionally a good Anglican, not always. Structural supersessionism, an even more serious form of supersessionism, the Christian reading of the biblical canonical narrative, the scriptures, Old and New Testament, goes from creation and fall to redemption coming of Christ to redeem us, and consummation, the consummation of all things, omitting the election of Israel as a means of blessing to the nations. And most people read their Bibles in four steps. Creation, God made us, he made the world. Fall, Adam sinned, we're all under sin. Redemption, Jesus came to die on the cross for our sin. Consummation, he's coming again, hallelujah. And they leave out the call and the election of Abraham, the call of the Jewish people to be a means of blessing to the nations. And today our churches are empty of this teaching in many places. And so it's not surprising that uh, this narrative has been reframed. I'll jump over that slide, but it's in the down there. There's your chair. Do you ever play musical chairs? And when there's only one chair left, who can sit on it? Is it the church or is it Israel? And uh, so one chair was occupied by Israel and taken over by the nations. I have a whole PowerPoint on chairs, by the way. So if you want PowerPoint, send me an email. One chair is broken in two. So this is the model that's very popular for young married couples getting married, a love seat, but it's broken in two, who aren't really sure what they want. And now, is it that we're sitting on one chair broken in two, or is there only one chair? And I'll let you ponder the rest of my chairs. But again, when Judaism and Christianity parted company, the truth was divided. So I'm going to jump because my time is running, in fact, it's run. And I'm going to come to the present situation, the need for reconciliation. There is my Messiah Yeshua, painted by the Jewish uh, Impressionist, Russian-Jewish painter, Mark Chagall. He is, in, he is there in the midst of his people. And yet for most Jewish people, Jesus is not in their midst, or they don't see him in their midst. And so we need to lament, and I bring this to you from my reflection, Jewish people, we have a tradition of lamenting. We even have people who are skilled in lamenting. If you want to study lament, read the book of Lamentations, a whole book on laments. I once said to a congregation, we don't have many laments in church today, do we? And somebody said, yes, we do. We call them sermons. <laughs> and in some traditions, we have the tenebrae, the darknesses and the mourning. But if you really want to learn about mourning and lamenting, the Jewish tradition is rich in lamenting. The expression of deep regret, the means of invoking the presence of God within a situation of distress and different types, and even the word for lament, kinah, groaning and outpouring, a wailing. And the, the meter, the rhythm, is a limping meter. Amarai ha'azinah Adonai binah ha'gigiz dum 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 three dum dum two. It's an interesting lament rhythm. It doesn't always translate. Give heed to my groans. Listen to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. And of course, the laments and psalms. Let me just read Psalm fifty. Four. And uh, the elements that you find in this psalm, which are really calling out to God in a place of pain. O oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. The psalmist 
is crying out for help. Oh God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Salah. You express your pain. You express your grief. You express your mourning. But then you go on to express trust as well. Behold, Adonai, the Lord is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. And then a vow, which is an expression of confidence that God's going to do what he says, and you'll be able to praise him in the future. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. And a concluding expression of praise. For he has delivered me from every trouble. And my eye has looked in triumph over my enemies. You start in pain and in the depths. And you oscillate between complaint and expression of grief and confidence and trust and ultimate rejoicing. We know a lot about laments, the frequent response to catastrophe. Jewish people, we can tell you a lot about suffering. We are a lacrimose culture. We wail and weep. God is called to account. We actually lament to God and before God, not just in our own hearts, but in the presence of God. Lament allows arguing with good and bad theology sometimes. Have you ever prayed for your enemies to be destroyed? The psalmist does. Psalm 109, one of the hardest psalms to deal with. It's there. Uh, and the expression of anger. The lament does not solve all of the sufferer's intellectual questions about the origin and meaning of the suffering but does provide a structured way, a liturgical way even, for the faithful to bring their suffering to God's attention and cope with it. The picture I want to bring you is this. The Jewish people are sitting in sadness and the Christians have turned their backs. And we, many of us, are still in mourning and suffering because of the Holocaust especially in Europe. And we've often found, that I often ask people, you know, how many of us have a Jewish friend that we've really shared the love of Yeshua with? And it seems to many Jewish people that the Christians have turned their back. And one of the great possibilities that you have in 2017 is to show love to the Jewish people, even in a time of repentance, and to seek that reconciling love. And now, it's the other way around. You know the old joke, in communism, man exploits man. In capitalism, it's the other way around. In one sense, the Jewish people have turned their, uh, are sitting in sorrow and sadness, and the Christians have turned their backs. But in another sense, if the Christians just sit in sorrow and sadness, and don't always have, and don't also have a message of comfort and encouragement, then the Jewish people will continue to turn their backs. So the roles, do you understand my rather odd humour here? The roles are actually sometimes reversed. Reconciliation is both a process and a product, and moves beyond conflict, changing motivations, goals, beliefs and attitudes so that the nature of the relationships between the parties change. I hope you're still with me okay. I'm, I'm now quoting from a secular Israeli psychologist and I have to let you know that these are my views and I'm not speaking for any other Messianic Jews or anybody else but I'm passionately committed to the journey of reconciliation which begins with a small step and the process leads to the product. Uh, and so, 
When we talk about reconciliation, I think these things are very important. Truth, mercy, justice, and peace. And of course we realise that those things are not easy to bring together. John Paul Lazarus, who's a peace builder, I think from the Mennonite tradition, works a lot with this idea of reconciliation. And it's developed, and of course it's there in Psalm 95 verse 10, mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth means being who we are and acknowledging the things that have been done wrong. Mercy means accepting one another without judgment and showing compassion and healing. Justice, putting things right where they have been wronged. And by the way, repentance without restitution is not real repentance. And repentance without putting relationships right is not the whole story. And this leads to renewed peace. This is a big challenge. And I must pause in a moment because I know there are comments and reflections that you would like to make. But let me say this. We have to be able to look to that reconciling process as the way that the Lord is leading us. For godly grief produces repentance, <coughs> which leads to salvation and brings no regret. But worldly grief produces death. If we just grieve without seeing the positive goal in mind of repentance and salvation and restoration of relationships, we will not have grieved in a wholesome way. Last year, my dear brother Benjamin and I, we both suffered the loss of our parent, of, of a parent. And I'm sure, like we were still in the grieving process. And two days ago, I was in the great synagogue in Budapest, Hungary. And I said Kaddish there, the prayer, the mourner's prayer, for the loss of a loved one. And then I went outside into the courtyard of the synagogue where 2,000 unnamed Jewish corpses were discovered. And I said, Kaddish again. And I had to express, using the words of this wonderful prayer that is part of my tradition, my grief and my sorrow, my personal sorrow, which was sorrow for the sufferings of my people, and I also had to proclaim that even in the midst of the greatest tragedies of life, God is exalted. May your name, your holy name, be sanctified and lifted up on high. Godly grief produces repentance, which leads to salvation and brings no regret and leads to reconciliation, restoration. And we look for rejoicing. How glad I was to see this rainbow as I came here yesterday. Because even my journey through Germany from Frankfurt via Göttingen, where my hero Karl Barth wrote the Göttingen Dogmatics, through the town of Fulda. Do you know the story of the Jews of Fulda? They were protected from a massacre by the the people in the town, because 120 Jewish believers in Jesus petitioned the bishop to protect the Jews. One of the most amazing stories of the Middle Ages. And Jewish believers in Jesus were used as a way of bringing the two groups together, and the bishop, who had the power in the town of Fulda, protected the Jews from being massacred by the inhabitants of the town. And I came through Fulda, and I came through Gottingham, and I came past the towns that I think my family must have lived here in many generations past, and I saw the rainbows. I drove out the drive in the taxi, and I knew God is faithful. And we have to experience that He has got the answer, and He is the victor. Thank you. Yeah. 
If you have comments or questions, please. I was going to raise the windows, but it's okay. So, Richard, in terms of supersessionism, can you say maybe to what degree, maybe a percentage, that you think it's still alive and well and entrenched? And maybe to what degree, a percentage, that it's disappeared or disappeared in the body of Christ? Yeah, well... I don't like to generalise, but I've done some surveys in Britain. So the statistics in Britain for attitudes of Christians towards Israel and the Jewish people is not good. 80 to 90% would have this view. But even the word supersessionism, you have to be careful with, because uh, it's, it's beginning a discussion. I think the exciting thing is that with the re-establishment of the State of Israel, with the after-effects of the Shoah, more and more Christians have come to see the place of Israel and Israel's promises ongoing. I think in the United States you're in a slightly different cultural climate. Uh, and I'm not an expert for that, but I often feel much more warmly welcomed in those sorts of places. Uh, but I think rather than try and give statistics, I think really the challenge is to do our reading of Scripture, seeing God's ongoing purposes with Israel. And if I was to look forward to a, a declaration at, at, um, in 2017, I would want to say that as Catholics and as Lutherans and as members of denominations, we affirm God's ongoing role towards Israel. We affirm the right of Jewish believers in Yeshua to remain as Jews. We affirm the promises of God to Israel and the nations that we're all included in. So the declaration should be there. Uh, and I wouldn't generalise with the statistics. You, you've mentioned it, Richard, when you were talking about how the idea, the supersessionist idea, basically brings in this concept of God who gets angry and rejects. By that, it opens the door for every other split. Because whenever there is fault in my brother, then God gets angry with that fault as he rejects him and moves on. But it also opens up a door, and I've seen it so many times with people who will not call themselves supersessionists at all, but there is this deep-rooted belief that unless I behave, God will reject me. And it's very, very deep in so many Christians. And the root of that in, in this, that's, that's where it came from. I agree. God is so much more merciful to us than we are to each other, often. Richard, thank you so much. It was a blessing. And a very vivid speaker. And that touches our hearts. Thank you. Thank you so much. God bless you. eine deutsche Bibel hernimmt. Julia hat eine englische, das ist, sie sagt jetzt das Wort, weil es ist zuerst englisch und dann deutsch. And um, so I just felt that what God was saying in that was 
he was describing the pain of uh, the Jewish people and uh, what they went through. But I particularly also have felt that he was giving me verses 10 and 11, where it's clear that uh, something wonderful comes out of this pain. And, and the words I felt that he had for us were, Rejoice with Jerusalem, that's verse 10, and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice greatly with her, all you who mourn over her, for you will nurse and be satisfied at her comforting breasts. You will drink deeply and delight in her overflowing abundance. <coughs> Freut euch mit Jerusalem und seid fröhlich über die Stadt, alle, die ihr sie lieb habt. Freut euch mit ihr, alle, die ihr über sie traurig gewesen seid. Denn nun dürft ihr saufen und euch satt trinken an den Brüsten ihres Trostes. Denn nun dürft ihr reichlich trinken und euch erfreuen an dem Reichtum ihrer Mutterbrust. Okay, ich werde das mitnehmen. Thank you.